You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 561 for June 16th, 2021. On today's show, woodwind player Anna Weber. Recording this, uh, as I often am these days, in the library parking lot at the Greensboro Free Library here in Greensboro, Vermont, up in the Northeast Kingdom. Just back from a week in Pennsylvania visiting my kids and uh, happy to be back here in Vermont, although it was really great to see them and I'll be down there quite regularly to see them. But really enjoying making Vermont my home. I didn't see this coming, but uh, it's really, really felt great. And uh, there's more to know about that if you follow my van travels which you can do on Instagram at Vanarchism. And you can also go to patreon.com slash Vanarchism to get regular updates about the things that I'm doing. Speaking of Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash thejazzsession or thejazzsession.com slash join. They both go to the same place. And become a member today for five or ten bucks a month. You get early access to the episodes, bonus shows, and more. Do me a favor, if you would, and share this episode or the podcast in general on your social media or with a friend via email or if you're the kind of person who talks to people, which I'm not, uh, you can even tell them about it, I guess. Please do that. It's uh, it's free, it's easy, it's fast, and it is the single best way to support this show. I really love this interview with Anna Weber. I liked the album already, and then I just this interview went in places I did not expect, and uh, she's just fabulous. The record is fabulous. The new album is called Idiom, and here's how it opens. Weber, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. We're here to talk about uh, many things, but most recently a new record called Idiom, which uh, I just felt myself completely drawn into because of the music, but also because of the incredibly diverse sound world on this album. I mean, from almost from track to track, you're just entering. It's like taking in a an exploratory trip through like an archipelago or something. And each Island has some cool little sound world on it. And I just, I, the first listen through some of the time I was just trying to figure out what's even making that sound that I'm hearing, for example, or, you know, who, who exactly is playing right now? You know, and it's, it's so exciting and fun. Um, it's challenging too. And uh, I, I just, I really love it. So 
that's not a oh, hardball so question much. or anything, but but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. Can you? I feel like this might be an impossible task, but if you were to try to give somebody like the elevator pitch of your vision for this record, do you have anything worked <laughs> up that you could say about it? <laughs> well, I haven't had to give an elevator pitch, um, and you know, I've been trying to stay away from being in elevators with other people yes, for a little while. Fair but uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess what I was working on when I was um, writing this series of pieces called Idiom was to look at my own improvisatory language. Um, the, you know, the the things that I would do that I guess would be considered extended techniques, um, some of them are sort of more extended than others. Uh, but yeah, to look at the things that I was sort of doing naturally and to distill them and um, write pieces around those things. Um, so, you know, with the trio, I, I feel like it's a little bit more clear because you just have one woodwind um, and then like drums and piano, which sound very different. But with that, I was really just trying to find like, how can I make the 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 physicality of what I'm doing on my instruments be matched, um, like in terms of physicality by both the, the drums and the piano, but also sonically. And then with the large ensemble, just like, okay, I have all these instruments. How can I like, you know, bring out the same sort of mysterious qualities um, with all of these other, you know, possible orchestrations? And so you've hinted at something that I didn't think to mention, which is that this is a, a two-disc uh, release, and one of them is a trio um, featuring two former guests of this show, Matt Mitchell and John Hollenbeck, and then there's a large ensemble on the second disc. You mentioned the extended techniques. For the for us lay listeners, can you can you give some ideas of, of what you're talking about there? Yeah. Um, so extended technique is kind of a blanket catch-all term that is used to describe any sort of non-traditional way of making sound on an instrument. Um, which is a bit of a misnomer because actually I sort of feel like extended techniques are sort of a like more natural language of the instruments, which is partially why I titled the record Idiom. They still take a lot of work to control, but they are sort of like the sonic things that set apart one instrument from the next. You know, a set of extended techniques that works on the saxophone is not going to be the same set of extended techniques that works on the piano, for example. Um, so, you know, on the saxophone, for example, an extended technique would be um, playing a multiphonic, which is where you get two notes at once. Um, you're sort of tricking the instrument into resonating in, in like two lengths of tube at the same time. Um, or slap tongue, which is where you, <clears throat> which is where you um, kind of make a percussive sound with the reed in the mouthpiece by creating a seal with the reed against the mouthpiece, and then letting that go really suddenly. Um, so yeah, it that those are the sorts of sounds that I was working with. There's a whole array of array of them, and um, there's different ones for saxophone and flute. And then I was trying to find, you know, those kinds of similar things on all of the other instruments to work with.
So when you talk about those techniques being part of the natural language of the instrument, is are these compositions in in some way an attempt to uh, maybe break down the idea of extension and just move these things into the realm of here's what these instruments can do? A little bit. Also, just I feel like something that I've been like working on in my own composition practice is, you know, a few years ago, I, I sort of looked at what I was writing and then what I was improvising and realized that there was a pretty big gap between those two things. You know, I was like improvising a lot of doing a lot of totally improvised sets, um, free improvisation and, you know, playing a lot of fully notated music that also included uh, free improvisation within that. But then when I was composing, I was basically just using like, you know, cool rhythms, cool pitches, um, everything within sort of a 12 tone equal temperament, which is this, you know, standard uh, tuning system of, of the piano. Um, and I, I guess I just was like, well, why is my language that I'm improvising with so different from the language that I'm notating? And so have been just like trying to figure out like, how can I notate that language? Because, you know, it's something that feels very natural to me. It also is something that feels very natural to a lot of other improvisers. Um, and how can I figure out how to like, you know, codify this within the context of my own composition. But the other thing is that has sort of been a, an unanticipated side effect, which I guess is sort of obvious in retrospect, is that once you start writing down the stuff that you improvise, it feels uh, like you have to move your improvisational language forward too. Otherwise, it just feels like you know, you're know you playing something you already wrote. Um, so it's been like a, a really nice way for me of expanding my improvisatory language too. Um, just by like writing something down and then, you know, needing to go farther from that point. So if someone who could read music looked at a chart for one of these pieces, would we see new uh, symbols, new things designating some of these extended techniques that, that aren't common to the way music is notated? Yeah, a lot of them aren't. I didn't invent them. Uh, <laughs> I poured over a lot of mostly like new music, um, contemporary classical music, scores from the last hundred or so years where people have been trying to notate these sounds for a long time and, you know, borrowed a lot of notation systems that I was finding there that described the sounds that I was trying to write down. A lot of it, you know, doesn't look that dissimilar from, I guess, sort of more traditionally notated music, but you'll see like little extra symbols or different kinds of note heads or, or sometimes just, you know, um, verbal descriptions of what you should, what you should do. And you said you were trying to apply some of this same methodology to the other instruments with which you were mm -hmm. performing. That seems like just, first of all, make, making your job of research exponentially more difficult. But <laughs> um, but secondly, I'm, I'm curious about that. I guess I'm curious about a lot of things around it. But one, for example, did that mean that you, when you picked the people who were going to play with you, they were folks you already knew had some leanings in this direction, that kind of thing? Yeah, totally. But in addition to that, I I met with everybody that I was writing for um, before before kind of even beginning to write the large ensemble piece for sure. Um, and, you know, I, I knew all these people. I had played together with almost everybody in some context. Um, but there's only so much of somebody's personality that you get to know when you play with somebody else's, you know, when you're both side people. Um, and I think just like getting together with somebody and saying like, so what do you not like doing? 
or what do you really like doing or show me something cool on your instrument that that you can do that you feel like you know you is underutilized in other people's music or whatever and just trying to like really get to know what makes somebody tick was a really important part of the the research part for me and then once I you know like for instance let's say that somebody really didn't like a certain technique then I would stay away from that um or if somebody was really interested in something but hadn't really had a chance yet to explore it or to explore it within the context of you know notated composition um that sort of gave me license to push that person a little bit farther in that direction because they probably wanted it um so yeah I mean the research (laughs) the research aspect of this piece really did take a long time it was um you know a pretty important like couple months at the beginning of the compositional process but I think that that made it both easier once I sat down to write because I already had this like collection of cool sounds that I wanted to draw from and also made it kind of feel more bespoke to everybody who was playing it, you know, because I, I was really writing it for them. I wasn't just writing it for their instrument. that is fascinating and I uh, one of the things I, I wanted to come back to was um, something that you hinted at earlier and something that I find myself being drawn toward more and more recently I used to like to th- if I you permit me a slight personal aside here I used to like to think of myself as a person who really was into challenging music and then I don't know what happened to me. I, I don't want to say it's because I got old, although it might be. But in every other aspect of my life, I've only gotten more radical as I've gotten older. But I do notice that these days I gravitate toward more comforting music, with the exception of things where I find myself having a hard time figuring out what's written and what's improvised. I find that I'm really attracted into that world. And there are a lot of places in here where it's quite clear what's written. I mean, there's some very intricate work that is clearly <laughs> not being improvised, right? It's it's obviously yeah. scored. But there are other places in here, and I feel like this has kind of been a theme of recent albums that I've had on the show. There are lots of other places in here where I really don't know, and I find that that tension really exciting. And so I'm just curious about how you approach that, whether that's something you think about, if it's important to you, however you want to react to that. Yeah, I think about it constantly. <laughs> it's very oh, important to me. This will be a way more yeah. interesting interview than if you said, no, I've never considered that ever, actually. <laughs> that's weird that you would notice that in my music. Yeah, exactly. This is really <laughs> awkward. <laughs> no, I mean, I think there's... It's not that I dislike music where that 
is a very where you know there's a very clear boundary between the written stuff and the improvised stuff and you know I, I love a lot of music like that but I think as a composer something that I'm drawn to is just having a continuity between everything that's going on in a piece and partially it's just like maybe that I'm a bit of a control freak at least when it comes to my um, composed music that I I don't I want to have thought about everything in advance <clears throat> and one of the things that I want to think about in advance is like what's the goal of this improvisation um, you know even if it's not me improvising like what do I want to have come out of this is it is it just you know for the person to kind of like be featured or is it to have some sort of narrative effect um or is it just to you know create a timbre or a texture or a mood and just thinking about that while I, I guess to, to backtrack just a little bit is I try to always make sure that there's a reason for the improvisation to exist in a piece because I don't want to take it for granted that there will be improvisation just because I'm writing music that comes out of a jazz background I want the improvisation to exist because that was the thing there's sort of like an old bob brookmeyer quote that you know you should should write until improvisation is the only thing that can happen and so that i i try to like hold myself to that when i write improvisation into into a composition so because of that because i'm thinking of like okay well what is the point what's is this a narrative thing is it linking a couple of things is it you know building energy is it releasing energy that means that generally speaking i try to sculpt what's happening around that improvisation and, and sometimes have some people who are maybe improvising an accompaniment to that but that accompaniment is much less unstructured than the improvisation would be or there's a written background to an improvisation that can almost sound as if it's improvised and I think that's something that I really enjoy playing with it is just like what are different levels of improvisation you know because I think that a lot of times it's just like okay cool you have a solo here and now you're re you're reading written music, but there's a lot of things that can happen in between those two um, sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, and yeah, and then in addition to that, just thinking about like, well, if this is my composition. This is the shape of this composition. You know, I've worked so hard on each of these, like creating tension and release and building a structure of this overall piece. I want to make sure that the improvisation is is part of that and is not just kind of like a afterthought. I, I want to make sure that the improvisation is fully integrated within a composition. So yeah, I, I've thought about the integration of improvisation and composition <laughs> a lot um, and definitely am, am always flattered when I hear people saying that they, they couldn't tell, you know, where it started or where it ended. A quick break from my conversation with Anna to remind you about becoming a member if you go to thejazzsession.com slash join or patreon.com slash thejazzsession. They're both the same place. You can become a member today for 5 or $10 a month. At $5 a month, you get every episode early, plus you get a weekly bonus show called Track of the Week. At $10, you get all of that, plus you get a bonus monthly episode as well. So go to thejazzsession.com slash join today and and convert yourself from listener to member. And thanks to all of you who've already done that. Now back to the show.
and you know, I really appreciate what you said about not not assuming there's improvisation just because this fits in the world that you know we refer to as jazz. Because generally speaking, if there's not somebody singing, we expect there to always be improvisation in a in a piece these days, right? Like if you're if it's a piece of vocal jazz, then for some reason we're forgiving if they just run the head down or whatever and you know and that's fine but everywhere else we kind of expect it to be there and then I, once we say well it doesn't have to be there then we really get into a whole other category of okay well then what is this music you know I, which i we're not going to litigate in this interview or on this show or hopefully ever again in human speech but yeah uh, I don't think it has to be <laughs> no absolutely not but you do kind of get into that place where like i remember um many moons ago on this show i think it was ben allison um who said that for him the hallmark of jazz was that it was music with risk and I don't think music with risk has to have improvisation as part of that. You can take risks in lots of other ways besides just improvising, um, which I think f- kind of fits in very well with what you're saying and how this music sounds to me. Like, it sounds like there's risk taking even when it's clearly composed. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I mean, I think it's hard to to define what jazz is these days. There's there's definitely stuff that like, um, you know, my parents who are probably going to listen to this podcast uh, <laughs> would define <laughs> as jazz, uh, or maybe not my parents. Let's say somebody else's parents who haven't been listening to my music for the last um, twenty years or however long. I was going to say I would um, hope but... <laughs> your parents would have an advantage at this point in this particular. My parents might have a slightly broader uh, <laughs> definition of what jazz is, but like let's say the average person on the street would define a certain thing as jazz and maybe my music as not jazz, but I think within, you know, the music community, we like, I definitely very clearly define my music as jazz, but I think there's, I don't know. I don't know if I really have a a clear train of thought on this, except that I I do feel like music that um, there's no real reason to put a genre term on it, but I do feel like there, there's no taking away of the fact that I'm a jazz trained musician who's, influences and heroes are by and large the great jazz musicians um why why would therefore like just because there's no improvisation in a piece my music be not considered part of that lineage well i won't force you to say any more about this especially as a guy who <laughs> generally regrets that he put the word jazz in the name of his show 14 years ago and <laughs> would re- really have preferred some other choice had been made by past jason let's just let's let all that go um but thank you for being willing to, to step into the what is jazz minefield with me even for sure. a moment i appreciate that this has very uh this these two uh records have very you know kind of Braxtony album title or a track titles, you know, where everything is movement or interlude, except for one, which is called Forgotten Best. And I, I'm contractually obligated to ask you about it since it's the only thing on the <laughs> album that isn't either idiom, interlude or movement. So why is the one that's called Forgotten Best called Forgotten Best? And please make up a story if there's not a good one. <laughs> well, um, I'm not at liberty to say the real story, but the uh, it is <laughs> it is connected to a piece from um, my album from a couple of years ago, um, Clockwise. There's a piece on that album called Hologram Best. And if you are a very close reader of liner notes, you might be able to figure out what the connection is. Um, so I'll just leave your listeners with that. <laughs> Fabulous. But really, no, that's great. I mean, it, it was also just... 
you know, I Forgotten Best is unconnected to the rest of the idiom pieces. It was just a piece that I also wrote around the same time as the idiom pieces that I was writing for the trio. And I, I felt like something a little bit a little bit lighter was a nice thing to have in that collection of, of music, something that sort of, you know, was more like standard equal tuning or equal temperament intonation, cool rhythms, cool pitches based. I felt like that it sort of, yeah, it was a nice moment in the set to just kind of like let your guard down a little bit more. in one sense move away from talking about the record for a minute we're uh, having this conversation in uh, June of 2021 I'm here in uh, Vermont where I am yesterday uh, we reached 80% vaccination and so all the COVID restrictions were lifted and I don't exactly know how I feel about that but I'm trying to feel good about it and Uh, You know, everybody that I'm talking to these days is kind of looking ahead toward the opportunity to perform again and to, you know, tentatively start rebooking all the things that were canceled last year and all of that kind of thing. So uh, where are you kind of in the that whole general mishmash of maybe there'll be gigs again someday? (laughs) Well, I certainly hope there will be gigs again someday. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I actually had this residency in Germany from February to May this year um which was great but also meant that i did not get vaccinated until the end of may right when i got back to the u.s there was just not enough um vaccine going around in europe at that time so i just got my second dose on sunday which was two days ago Um, oh wow so i feel like i'm a little bit later to the party than most people um (laughs) in fact i still have you know about two weeks to wait until i'm fully at the party but uh i feel like the the optimism that I'm feeling since being back in the U S and just, you know, like feeling things open up and, and it doesn't seem to just be wishful thinking is yeah. It's I I'm more optimistic than I've been at any point in the last uh, 15 or 16 months. Um, And that feels really good. And yeah, I mean, I have, I have stuff booked in the fall and the spring and I hope it doesn't fall through. I, I am very optimistic at this point that it won't fall through, that it'll actually happen. Um, and yeah, that feels after this last, you know, almost a year and a half of just feeling really, you know, I, I think a lot of people were just questioning, like, will we have careers still? Um, does like performing music in front of an audience, is that going to be a viable path for anybody? I think for the first time in a long time, I'm just like, yeah, it it is. It will come back. 
maybe some things will have changed, but this is the thing that I love to do. And when I've had a few opportunities to do live streams or play with other people during this time, it's felt just amazing to do that. And I um, am really looking forward to being able to do that on a more regular basis. Tell me about your residency. Yeah, I was at the this place called the American Academy in Berlin, um, which is they do it's mostly academics who go um but they have one composer per year um in the spring semester um composer or musicologist i guess sometimes but uh yeah so i was lucky enough to have actually gotten this residency i think i applied like in december 2018 and heard about it in 2019 and had been planning to do this for such a long time and then the pandemic hit and I wasn't sure if I was even going to be able to get to Europe. Um, So luckily they made it possible to do that but basically it was just room to uh, work on my own stuff for three months um, and I had applied actually to do research there rather than compose um, which was sort of based on the fact that I had been you know so busy as most freelancers always are um in December 2018 (laughs) and felt like you know I was just sort of jumping from going on tour to needing to write a set of music and having to do that in a way that felt like you know I was just sort of pumping out compositions and then going on to the next tour or whatever and didn't ever have time to sort of sit and grow and learn So my proposal had been to um, research just intonation, which was something that I've been interested in for a long time, but hadn't really had a chance to kind of sit down and really like do the the reading and the listening research that I'd wanted to. And yeah, even though, you know, I've had basically endless time to um, sit back and do my own thing in the last since the pandemic started, um, it actually was a really nice kind of. Uh, stimulus to 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 do that research that I'd intended to do when I was there. So that's basically what I was doing. I was um, I finished off a piece in the first month or so that I was there, and then the second two months I was really just researching um, just intonation, which is uh, for anybody who doesn't know, that's sort of a it's a it's a tuning system that's a little bit different than the equal temperament tuning system that we generally work with. Um, it's based on the natural overtone series rather than um, than trying to fit. Uh, 12 notes into the octave. And it seems to be of a piece with your general life's mission of how can I make this instrument as difficult to play as humanly (laughs) possible, right? (laughs) Yeah, I guess, I guess so. But it's also sort of a continuity or continuation of, um, you know, the work that I was doing with just like, what is the, what is the natural way that this instrument wants to function? Well, just intonation is the natural way that instruments want to tune really. So, yeah, kind of like taking that thread and and following it a little bit farther. Let me take a quick moment to thank the folks who make this show possible, starting with the members who support it, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, and Dave Rabel for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. 
Follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Instagram at The Jazz Session. It's also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash The Jazz Session. Take a second to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you'd like to keep up to date on this show, on my other podcasts, on my poetry, my van travels, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now back to the episode. And uh, uh, please correct me if this is completely wrong, but are they not allowed to function that way so that we can play different ones of them together? Yeah. Is that the point of these little things? Yes, exactly. Different ones of them together. Uh, (laughs) So a a lot of it comes from trying to figure out how to tune a piano. Um, And for a long time, people... Basically, there's... (laughs) To not go into too much detail, if you tune fifths, perfectly and you keep stacking perfect fifths um until you get back to where you started so if you go c g d a e all the way back until you get c again that will be a different pitch than if you just go octaves if you go c c c c and that's been something that's i guess sort of befuddled music theorists for you know millennia sometime like not that long ago you know, it, it wasn't even fully adopted until really, I, I think it's a little bit contentious, but I think like the beginning of the 20th century was when it was like kind of the standard thing to do equal temperament. But basically, um, a few hundred years ago, people figured out that if you make every fifth smaller by just a little bit, that you could actually make it so that the fifths were lined up with the octaves when you stacked them. And so that's what equal temperament does. Basically, it makes all the fifths a little bit less than perfect fifths. Um and then sort of makes all of the other intervals um, exactly the same distance between each of those intervals, just so that it makes it so that it's possible to play in all 12 keys and to play them on a keyboard instrument with 12 notes rather than a keyboard instrument with like, say, 43 notes per octave. Um, so I don't so know I'm that's, 47 uh... years old and have been uh-huh. working in music or, or involved in music in some way since I was four. And today I learned everything you just said. I, literally, I didn't know any of that until you just... I had heard those terms, but I had no idea until yeah. right now all of the things you just said, for example, about fifths not being perfect. Uh, I, I didn't know any of that. So I'm, I'm assuming... I mean, it's it's not something that's I'm common knowledge to a lot of people. Other people should. Yeah. I, well, I, I, I was going to say, of course, if I didn't know it, but that means nothing. Everyone else I know might know it, but I didn't know it. And I'm very excited about that because it's, it's rare that I find myself at the end of one of these episodes thinking, well, that's a whole other thing I didn't know before that I know now. Because normally I ask questions to which I have some idea of the answers, like a, like a lawyer. So that was fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I don't of know course. what else to ask you now because I'm just so thrilled at this new piece of knowledge that I have. So, um, But here's the thing I will ask. Uh, <laughs> is the... 
is the the just intonation thing is that anywhere in the same ballpark of like microtones and things like that is that involved in any of that because i microtonal music is a thing we have talked about a lot on this show but the technicalities of it sometimes escape me uh yeah ballpark it's okay to say no totally um no 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 it it is like a lot of microtonality or what we would refer to as microtonality is you can find it in just intonation I guess a difference would be um, a lot of microtonality is based on taking that equal temperament system and just dividing it further. So, you know, like quarter tones would be taking the 12 tone equal temperament and just making it a 24 tone equal temperament or making eighth tones or sixth tones. Gotcha. And all of those are sort of like they're approximate, whereas like just intonation is based on ratios, actually. So it's a little bit different. um, But using microtonality you can get something a little bit closer to just intonation than you can with um just the 12 tone equal temperament system okay and so now the final question um on today's syllabus about just intonation so if you're (laughs) if you're doing this research about it i'm i'm imagining although of course you can correct me if i'm wrong that it's in in order to apply it in some way right so can you talk about what that way would be yeah, I mean, that w- that was sort of the whole point. I, I'm definitely not the first person to, to research just intonation. It's been very, very thoroughly explored by very many people. And so my research was actually more just into like, well, what's practical for me? And specifically for me as somebody who's working in a realm where a lot of the other musicians that I would be working with don't necessarily have a lot of experience playing these things. So how can I use it in a way that's that's going to be achievable by people I'm playing with um, and that where people can hear it where you know I, I'm probably still pushing people's limits a little bit but but where it's not just going to fall flat on its face and looking at various ways that people have notated it throughout the years and sort of how far it's it's gone and, and within that like how far do I want to go how or or where do I think is a good place to stop for now and training myself to hear a lot of these intervals too. So that was sort of the work that I was doing. And then, yeah, the plan is to, to try to write some stuff with it, (laughs) but I was sort of sketching as I went along, you know, like would write like little fragments of things after I had finished listening to something or reading something. Um, And I do have the intention of more fully realizing some of that stuff in the upcoming months, but I'm I'm taking a little break from composition for a couple months because I felt like I wrote a lot of music during the pandemic year that that never saw the light of day and that was a little bit demoralizing. So I'm giving myself a little bit of like medical rest to <laughs> to recover from that. <laughs> well, that sounds very wise.
Well, we were talking a few minutes ago about the possibility of live performances opening back up. And in fact, that's the case for you uh, related to the album Idiom. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, so I'll be doing an album launch for Idiom in September at Roulette in Brooklyn um, on September 23rd with uh, both the trio and the large ensemble. And yeah, I'm really excited about that. We had sort of talked about doing it in June, sort of closer to the album's launch, but several of the musicians in the band actually live in different countries and that was looking like it was really complicated. So I'm, you know, crossing my fingers and hoping that it will be less complicated come September. (laughs) But regardless, we're going to do this show September 23rd at Roulette in Brooklyn. And if you're not in Brooklyn or New York City, as far as I know, Roulette is going to be continuing to um, do live streams of their concerts, so it should be accessible no matter where you are. Fabulous. And, of course, that's on John Coltrane's birthday, which is an auspicious date uh, to do a show. <laughs> and also the birthday of Bruce Springsteen and Ray Charles, if you want to throw some really interesting covers into your <laughs> into oh, your night. Right. The, the idiom-style cover of any Bruce Springsteen song is something I'm really, really <laughs> excited well, to Well, you imagine. know, you laugh, but actually, like, sort of remarkably the first um, pandemic gig that I had was uh, with Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) Um, What? Yeah. You can find a video on YouTube of, I actually don't play on that song, but um, little aside, uh, this rock band that I have played with just a couple times um, called Bleachers, which is the project of this. Oh, I love Bleachers. Um, Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Jack Antonoff. Um, anyway, he, I played with them at Governor's Island Ball a couple of years ago. Um, the the guy who plays saxophone in that band normally, Evan Smith, is an old friend of mine that I went to college with. So he has called me for a couple of things. Anyway, they did a rooftop recording session at Electric Lady Studios in October last year, and Evan called me for this this gig again. And um, you know we. We rehearsed. I didn't really know what was happening. Um, at one point, St. Vincent was in the room, and I was like, oh, wait, that's St. Vincent. Wow. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we're on the roof doing this video, and this you know older gentleman shows up, and everybody's calling him Bruce. And I was like, oh, wait a second. That's, that's Bruce Springsteen. Black tears on your sheet. I won't play in my bed. I'll take you out of the city. Run it right into the shed. Cause I wanna find tomorrow. Yeah, I wanna find tomorrow with a girl like you. Not shining time today. Just sitting on the front stoop. I didn't, I wasn't supposed to be playing on the song that, that, uh, Springsteen is playing on um but everybody sort of decided that would be you know cool both probably mostly for me but also hopefully for the uh you know continuity of the set if I was still on stage so if you look up Bleacher's Bruce Springsteen Electric Lady Studios on YouTube you'll you'll see um me sort of standing and holding my saxophone behind Bruce Springsteen <laughs> if if someone had told me today that there was one degree of separation between Anna Weber and Clarence Clemens, I wouldn't have believed it. But it turns out <laughs> that it's true. Turns out it's true. That yeah. 
this interview has ended in a way I could never have predicted after we just spent like 15 minutes talking about the intricacies of just intonation to then arrive <laughs> at your rooftop performance with St. Vincent and Bruce. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love everything about it. it uh, it's I'm so cheered up by everything about this interview. It's made me so happy. Uh, my guest oh, has great. been Hannah Weber. And in addition to being a side person for The Boss, she's also released a great album called Idiom, which is out now and you should definitely check out. And as we heard, September 23rd at Roulette in Brooklyn and probably also streamed online, there'll be a CD release party for the album. Anna, it has been such a joy to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jason. It's been great to talk. Thanks to my guest this week, Anna Weber. If you value what you just heard, become a member for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz. My gosh, we're almost at the end of the season on The Jazz Session. Everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.